So I um, was recalling in the opening circle um, someone invoked in our in sort of our one word share uh, invoked the image of coming home and I love that image um, so I'm going to borrow it for the title of this talk um, and the title is coming home uh, the precious experience of belonging and I go there because often the feeling of belonging is not quite so simple for us. When external conditions create the experience of exclusion or separation or isolation, life becomes painful. And then there's also the internalization of that exclusion that we can be conditioned by external circumstances to exclude and deny ourselves from who we really are. And this external oppression can lead to our own self-hatred, our self-denial, judgment, and just self-harm, more suffering. We all know what the proverbial closet means, although for most of us it's not a proverbial experience. It's actually something that we are or have lived. So whether it's a, a culture that creates laws that treat us and our relationships as less than, or a family that refuses to see us for who we are, or a workplace that overlooks abuse against us. The pain and separation from the larger society is a very real experience. And the pain itself is alienating because the people who are involved in these external conditions often don't seem conscious of the pain that's being created. So there's a further feeling of separation that arises. In, in the mainstream culture, with its kind of cultural unconsciousness, sometimes even the best teachings are difficult to be absorbed without the right conditions. So I, I recall that in the Buddha's time, the Buddha was regarded as a teacher who had perfect skillful means. In other words, he knew exactly what to say in order for the truth to land on, on that being, that person. And yet, in his time, there were people that were not fully enlightened because the conditions were not right. So in searching for conditions in terms of my own practice that would promote my deepening and growth spiritually and personally, this retreat I mentioned was one of my, dharma, my, one of my very important dharma gates. There were no people of color retreats at the time, and so um, it was a very special space for me, very rare. And um, I still hold that preciousness and, and so thrilled to see all of you participating in this.
finding a community to belong to and finding refuge and safety is so important in this spiritual development, this spiritual practice. If one is only dealing with survival, sort of being defended against all of these external conditions, we can't really relax into what our experience really is. And of course, all of those protective devices that we have, all those defense mechanisms, are in place for very good reasons. And there's an experience beyond all of that for us. So as we begin to have this experience of belonging, we can begin to relax and let life unfold, however it may. Whether there's a sense of relief or joy, or sometimes there's a memory or, or experience that, that hasn't been uh, present for a long time. But underneath all of that is this beginning of stillness in the mind and heart. A calmer state of mind that the mind can truly begin to uh, be aware of itself. Because up until then, in terms of, of the struggling just to survive, we are really only aware of external conditions. And the practice is not about simply surviving in our life. The practice invites us to the opportunity to live into our fullest potential, into who we really are. Maya Angelou writes, the ache for home lies in all of us, the safe place we can go as we are and not be questioned. There's a, there's a relaxation when we begin to touch this experience of home. Sayadaw Utejaniya, who is one of the newer Burmese teachers from Myanmar that, that uh, is coming into the West, says that the meditating mind should be relaxed and at peace. It's not that the meditating mind needs to become relaxed and at peace. It should be relaxed and at peace. Both the mind and the body should be comfortable. Meditating is whatever happens, good or bad, accepting, relaxing, and watching. So in his instructions, the relaxation is an incredibly important piece of the invitation. So each of you must have sensed this, otherwise you would not be here. And with this beginning of relaxation and belonging begins a healing, a gaining a sense of interconnection and non-separation from others that we might not have in our outside external culture. So in the, for the past two or three years, I've been doing a gay men's retreat in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And um, 
uh, one of the uh, folks um, wrote after the retreat was over. In the company of heterosexuals, I have come to some extent, I always, I am always to some extent on guard. I am old enough that when I came of age, being queer was listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school used to boast of going and rolling queers. With a very few exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous and done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there any positive messages or role models. A person just doesn't get over growing up like that. I have dealt with crippled self-esteem and depression all my life. So, in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I'm quite sure I would not have had in a general retreat. It was so beautiful to me to be in the company of other gay, bisexual, transgender men having humbly come to practice, and this huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do, and I will seek out queer Buddhist environments to do it in. Whether we are a gay man or not, he's referring to the sense of commonality that we all have, that we can take refuge in, this third refuge of community and sangha, the safety of this third jewel. Because we all know those of us who have tried to create a daily practice, how difficult it is to do alone. And when the um, isolation is both social and emotional, when, we're, when, when there's a sense of separation from a community, a larger community that we're practicing in, it becomes even more difficult. And then we have this peculiar cultural conditioning that we think we can do it alone because the instructions are pretty basic. <coughs> they're, they're, they're pretty simple, but it, because they're basic and simple doesn't mean that they're all that easy. And so we think that we should be able to do it alone and if, that there's something wrong that if we can't do it alone, if we can't stay with the breath or if we can't you know, develop a, a practice that is um, continuous or, you know, a daily practice for 30 minutes a day. And then when we think that something is wrong, we think, we begin to think that something is wrong about us. So when we're alone in this isolation, the mind can just spin and go in completely um, unbeneficial directions. And when we come together in community, when, the, when the, um, the mind gets pulled away from an object like the breath, how often has it happened to you that you just listen and hear the sound of the person next to you breathing and it allows you to come back? It sounds very subtle. 
but it's actually one of the ways in which we can support each other. It's quite intimate in a way that we begin to get to know each other, not in terms of how we interact with each other, not in terms of what I say to you or what you say to me, but how we are, sort of with our breath, how we walk, how we eat. How often do we get an intimate sense of a person other than our spouse or partner or our family member? being invited into this intimacy, into the people in this entire room during this retreat. And part of this intimacy, development of intimacy and interconnection, is actually um, part of the mindfulness practice. Arena was uh, talking about the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. And in it, it says, the noble ones abide contemplating internally, they abide contemplating externally, they abide contemplating both internally and externally. It's really inviting us into the practice of expanding our awareness to be aware of the experience of others at the same time that we're aware of our own experience. So um, uh, uh, one of the recent commentaries of um, the Satipatthana Sutta is is written by um, a teacher called Analayo, and he writes, how do we do this um, experience of uh, being aware of self and other? And he writes in a sort of cavalier way, but I think it's really quite telling. He says, it doesn't require psychic powers. It only requires awareness and a degree of common sense. So when I read that, I was reminded um, uh, by something that, uh, uh, an interaction that um, occurred between Stephen and I, my, my husband. <laughs> and uh, one of the difficulties of this role that of teaching is my schedule. Um, I'm away a lot and I travel a lot. And if, it's, if, if there's a stress around what I do, that is it. And uh, I remember last year um, I was coming in from a week's uh, retreat and packing, getting ready to go to another. And um, I looked up and Stephen was standing by the bed because I always pack um, uh, the suitcase on the bed. And I looked at him and, and I just asked the question, what's wrong? And I actually didn't have to have him answer. I knew what was a little bit off. And so that informed me what would be beneficial to do. It doesn't require psychic powers. (laughs) Only awareness and a degree of common sense. 
this internal reflection occurs before external reflection. And by understanding our own feelings, we begin to more and more be able to understand the feelings and experiences of others. When our awareness practice is applied only internally, it can lead to a kind of self-centeredness, which is another, just another form of selfing, as Irina was, was discussing. We can be preoccupied with our own experiences at the expense of being aware of the experience of others and our impact on others. And this can expand into a collective dynamic. So that in our mainstream culture, we have this propensity of elevating the value of individual efforts. And we also value and elevate only those people who are closest to us. So as a culture, the mainstream isn't really good at recognizing the needs of, or the impact on, or even the wounding of non-dominant elements of our communities. This connection between internal awareness and external awareness is the foundation of bridging personal transformational work and the work in the world around social transformation. We begin to really explore and disidentify, just having a little bit of distance from the experience of what my experience is and what your experience is. This through the reflection of internal and external. It's a both holding the both and so that we begin to explore what is my what is the impact of my life on yours and what is the impact of your life on mine. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. Dr. Martin Luther King. So this expansion of the personal awareness practice into a relational awareness practice actually leads to greater and greater intimacy. And it's actually my, my, my belief or, or understanding of the Dharma is that this is what the Buddha intended. That, that he didn't intend this practice to be about personal salvation or enlightenment. The way that he designed the, the, um, the sacred community, the monastic container of these teachings, was not that you go off as a monastic nun or monk into the cave for 20 years, get enlightened and come back. He designed it such that each and every day the nuns and the monk walk for their food. The monastics are 
not allowed to cook for themselves, they are not allowed to buy food for themselves, they are not allowed to store food overnight. So at the crack of dawn, they take their bow and they take their shoes off and they walk in the streets and they are offered, they, they don't ask for food, they are offered food because the understanding is they are feeding the community spiritually and they need to be sustained as well. This is the intimate interdependence of the practice. That it's not that we're supposed, to, it's, it's not that we should try to do it alone. It's that we're not supposed to do it alone because we can't do it alone without each other. And the practice of that collective awareness can happen here. You know, as you exit the hall or as you go into that experience called the dining room and everybody converges, just noticing how we are with each other, not just how you are in terms of where you need to go. So this is going to date me a little bit, but um, I happened to be in a, con in a previous life, I happened to be at a conference in Tokyo when Bruce Springsteen opened his Born in the USA tour. And I happened to be with one of the conference participants in the park, and there he was. And we chatted him up, and we got tickets to his concert. So we went to the concert, and it was in the um, 1960, the, t uh, the, the, the Olympic Stadium, 22,000 people. And um, so he got up there, did his thing, which was fabulous, and um, we were getting ready to leave and we noticed that no one was leaving. So we talked, and, and then no one was leaving. And um, little by little, we sort of looked around the stadium and we realized that the whole stadium was exiting row by row. Okay, fast forward to San Jose this summer. <laughs> Stephen and I went to the George Michael concert. <laughs> I can't tell you how diametrically opposite that concert was. People were standing in the aisles and you couldn't see because, you know, there was... It's a way of holding our collective, how we are with each other. And it's also another reason that we encourage you to hold the container of this retreat. Because as you... Just noticing, um, if you need to do something, uh, like go out or come back, that you really do affect other people in this experience and really to walk lightly. So, this, this initial sense of belonging in community 
is really is just the beginning. So you arrive at the retreat and you begin to sit and walk. And then you find that, you know, there are these sensations that arise called pain or itch or restlessness and you can't stay with the breath. And then there's a thought and a thought and the thoughts don't ever stop or the songs, have you ever had that? The songs that go and go and you don't want to hear them. You can't do this. This is not the place for you. You don't belong here. Or you've been to multiple retreats and it's just not unfolding the way that the last one did or the way that you think it should or can't the teachers say anything new or the teachers are talking too much. You really don't belong here. And here you've come to this accepting community with you know, this amazing facility and you still feel different. When we really have the chance to explore this, this experience of belonging, the question can be, do we belong here, unconditionally, in this moment? So there's a life event in his um, many stories of the Buddha um, that really speaks to me in this situation of, um, and the story comes in the process of his own enlightenment. So after years and years of searching on a spiritual path, um, uh, prince, uh, the prince Siddhartha Gautama, the, the Buddha yet to be, um, he decided with all of his resolve and commitment that he would sit under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya and not get up until he was fully awake. And as he sat in meditation, he penetrated um, the, the true nature of how things are. However, before his attainment, Mara, which is the um, embodiment of, of, of uh, uh, his, his supreme foe. He's, he's, um, he can be viewed as a god, but um, uh, he's just these forces that distract us from the goal of awakening. And um, he saw what the Buddha was doing and was determined to prevent him from his enlightenment. So he amassed all these armies and, and, and weapons to force Siddhartha out of his meditative absorption. And he caused unimaginable forces of destruction to arise. And he, these windstorms came and tried to blow him off his Dharma seat. And there were these tornadoes and torrential rainstorms. And it is said that um, uh, the floods did not dampen the robes of the Buddha to be um, at all. And there were these showers of rocks and these um, uh, hot coals that rained down upon um, the, uh, the meditating Siddhartha. And they were transformed into celestial flowers. These assaults 
are like the distractions and the oppression that comes when we sit. And after nine of these unsuccessful attempts to unseat the future Buddha, the enraged Mara gathered his hundreds of thousands in his army. Sounds like Lord of the Rings, you know? Charging down with screams in the background, get out of that seat. That seat belongs to me. You do not belong here. And these are my witnesses to my owning the seat that you're in. And there was a deafening roar in his armies and, and, and they, they, they confirmed, yes, we are his witness. He belongs here. And then he says, Mara says, and you, dear prince, sit alone. Who is your witness? And the prince, close to his liberation, undisturbed by any of the obstacles created by Mara, reached down with the simplest gesture, filled with ease, and touched the ground with his middle finger of his right hand. And in doing so, the Buddha Buddha called upon the Earth Mother to witness his inalienable right to be in his Dharma seat. And so brilliant was the power of the Earth Mother when she appeared that Mara and his enemies were dispelled into all corners of the universe. I've used that image and that story many times when I needed some inspiration or strength in my meditation practice, when I feel that I just can't do this anymore. And it just It can be a physical gesture of touching the ground just to remember the story or just the energy, the intention that I really do belong here. Regardless of where the mind goes, regardless of whatever is happening externally or even internally. That I not only surrender to the Dharma, but I deserve the Dharma. And we each deserve the Dharma. As we choose to sit, just like the prince, we have this Dharma seat, this place in the world that can't be taken away from us. Regardless of the temptations or the distractions or even the tortures that are out there, We don't have to move from this seat of our freedom. And even if we relinquish it voluntarily, it will always be there when we return. So likewise, when we go out and live our lives fully, regardless of the external circumstances of our lives, we totally belong to wherever we are. Regardless of the opposition, that might state that we're not worthy of belonging, like Mara, regardless of the consequences or impact of that opposition. There is this sense of home that we can bring with us wherever we go, no matter what shows up for us. So some of you are here for the first time, but even if you're not here for the first time, um, maybe you will feel like 
this African-American man who went to his first people of color retreat. It's, it's a little long, but it, it, it really it spoke to me. It, it, it speaks to me. Until the people of color retreat, I had never stopped to consider the psychic toll in terms of paranoia and stress-induced bodily constrictions and the sheer exhaustion that my ever-ready defensive posture was exacting on me. My unease in certain meditation practice settings seemed always to be close at hand. W.E.B. Du Bois coined the term double consciousness to describe the aspects of this peculiar affliction, affliction whereby the sense of African Americans always looking at oneself through the eyes of others and measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in an amused contempt and pity. A subtle shame often accompanies my double consciousness when I attend a Buddhist Dharma talk where my minority status often appears in stark relief against a predominantly Caucasian body of practitioners. For some people, it's hard to feel fully accepted where so few of one's peers really relate to a black man's experience or worldview. So, it was with cons- uh, this considerable chip on my shoulder that I came to the People of Color Retreat seeking ease and comfort for a burdened body and soul. In the span of five days, I walked these hallowed grounds, communing with nature and making offerings to the enlightened ones. And at every manner of impromptu shrine erected by a grateful group of yogis. By night I reveled and drank liberally from the inexhaustible fountain of wisdom that is the Buddha Dharma. And all of this took place amid a radiant community of color who had gathered in this majestic place for the celebration and liberation of spirit. And our lights shone as bright as the birth of a new sun. For one of the few times in my life, I felt as if I actually belonged right here and right now. That was a little long, but that really described the sense of healing that the sense of belonging offers. And as we begin to touch it in greater and greater amounts in our practice. We can carry the sense of belonging, what, what Maya Angelou calls this sense of home, wherever we go. That we actually do belong wherever we are. And it, the sense of belonging will penetrate in deeper and deeper ways. It is being rooted in the sense of being here, with here changing with the present moment. So in this moment, with this pleasant feeling, I can be. In this moment, with this unpleasant feeling, I can be. 
in this moment of neutral feeling I can be, in this moment of joy or celebration I can be, in this moment of difficulty or pain or oppression I can be. This is the sense of belonging that invites us into the experience of the universal family. The family that excludes no one and nothing. It's the family of life. So in this retreat, as you sit and set the intention to create stillness in your mind and heart, even if the anxiety or the memories or the pain or the discomfort or the irritation arises, explore for yourself if there's also somewhere in your experience a sense that you belong here no matter what arises. That there is this also place that you can call home. And if home is where the heart is, the invitation of mindfulness and loving-kindness is for your heart to be everywhere. listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.